What's going on, guys? My name is Josh. And this is Kirsten. And you are listening to the What's Happening Idaho podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are not recording where we normally do, which is generally in Kirsten's dining room. Kirsten, where are we recording today? We're in Pocatello, Idaho. We are at an Airbnb. What are we doing in Pocatello, Idaho? Well, I was asked by John Crowder to speak at his Liberty Dinner tonight, so I'm pretty excited about that. Pretty nervous, too, but it's okay. Shake the nerves off. You did great. You actually spoke last night at another one. Yes, I did, in Blackfoot for Sonia Harris. It was great. It was their first one, and it's a good turnout, and just went into political activism more so from a conservative standpoint. So at the Liberty Dinner here in Pocatello, what is the subject that you're going to be speaking on? Well, I'm going to be telling them about how to get involved in the most grassroots level possible, which is the precinct commitment. It's the volunteer position, but it's a candidate who is closest to the people. They're reaching out to their neighbors and making sure people know how to get involved in their local elections. Yeah. Well, you're definitely grabbing a lot of attention from around the state, and that's why they wanted you out here is because... You're doing a lot of the things that people talk about doing. Well, I'm tagging along because you asked me to. We've also got our good friend, Chris Trakel, who's tagging along. reason we tagged along is because we're both number one precinct committee men. We've been in the fight and you wanted to maybe look at us for, hey, am I, yeah. <laughs> am I missing anything? Or if there's a question that maybe you don't know the answer to, yeah. we can help you out there. The other reason I came is because I do work for a candidate here in Idaho and we launched our door-to-door knocking campaign in Canyon County last week, and we had a lot of success. We we spoke to over 200 people there, and I needed to get some of my people out here in Pocatello set up, show them how to use the app, and answer any questions they have so that we can get going out here. So lots of exciting stuff going on here. So much fun. <laughs> Pocatello's cute, actually. You like it? I do. Yeah, it's, it's a nice place. I yeah. enjoy it. This historic downtown is adorable. The houses are gorgeous. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's... It's nice. And it's not as cold as I thought. No, Pocatello is a nice place. And look, there's a lot of people on fire putting in the work out here. So I'm really excited we're out here connecting with them. Me too. Absolutely. All right. Today joining us, we have Scott Hernan running for Senate up in District 1. Scott, how are you? I am doing great, Josh. How are you? I'm doing better than I deserve. You know who says that a lot is uh, Dave Ramsey. I stole from him. Oh, nice one. Can't go wrong with Dave. (laughs) Well, Scott, tell us a little bit about yourself. What, What made you decide to run for Senate? Well, I've lived in North Idaho since 2004, and I actually moved from a number of places. I was born in Virginia, but I came here directly from California, my wife and I did. And we were most interested in the freedoms that were available in Idaho, especially compared to states like California. And then I got involved as a jail chaplain in a legal situation regarding an inmate many years ago. And I realized, wow, you really have to fight for every constitutional right and freedom that's in Idaho code or in the U.S. or Idaho constitutions. And then I became involved in the Republican Party in 2018 when I went to the convention. And I realized that there's a lot of people in the state of Idaho who don't actually mind it going the direction of turning liberal or turning blue, and so they're not fighting for liberty in Idaho. And so I went ahead and ran as a precinct committeeman in 2020, and I was elected to the Bonner County Republican Central Committee as my local precinct committeeman. And, and just since 
2018, I've been involved in politics in Idaho because we need liberty-loving fighters. And it, at this point, it's a fight. And we've seen that with COVID-19 over the last two years. And so then my current senator is probably one of our worst in the Idaho state legislature. We've got 105 legislators, 70 in the House, 35 in the Senate. We know that all good liberty bills may pass the House, but definitely find a multitude of ways to be killed or die in the Senate. And the guy I'm running against is one of those who is on the wrong side of the equation. He's clearly on the side of bigger government, and Mm -hmm. he's clearly not for the Constitution and the Republican Party platform. So I decided that this year is the best opportunity to finally change out District 1 and get some good conservative leadership in the Senate. And that's why I'm running. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited about there up there in District 1. You've got two conservatives that I've I, look. I met you in 2018 at the Republican State Convention. We talked online a little bit before that, but I've I've kind of seen the direction you guys have been heading up there, and, and I'm really excited to see your hat in the race over there. Mm-hmm. You've got also Todd Engel. He's running for the house over there. So excited about that. Tell us if you could, what were some big issues that maybe your current senator, you would have liked to have seen him take action, you know, a more conservative way that he didn't. And what is something you would have done different? Well, there's a number of them, but the one that immediately pops into my head is the current almost two year long state of emergency that the governor placed us in by executive order and proclamation. And, of course, he did a lot of other terrible things when COVID first started happening by proclamation. He got away with it, actually changed election law. And we had the May primary a couple of years ago in a very unusual fashion by absentee ballot with the dates pushed out. The legislature alone has the ability to change Idaho code. No one ever challenged him on that. So he got away with that. And so this state of emergency has just been used to propagate all kinds of bad ideas in Idaho, and a lot of federal money has flowed in. And a lot of times when federal money comes in, it's usually basically encroaching upon state authority. So it's trying to do things and give the federal government control over things that they were not designed to have control over. So we had this great opportunity in the last legislative session to end the state of emergency and to rebalance the power between the legislative and executive branch and important check and balance in our constitutional republic. And my senator voted against both of the bills that were involved. And then when when they did pass, though, with a two-thirds majority in both the House and the Senate, the governor vetoed them, and five Republicans defected in the Senate. And the veto override, while it succeeded in the House. It failed by one vote in the Senate, and the senator I'm running against was that one vote. And that's just one example. And then there's just common sense things, like last year we were the first state to pass the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, which would prevent biological males from competing against girls in girls' sports, which is common sense. They have a physical advantage, and it completely ruins girls' dreams in girls' sports when men compete against them. And Fortunately, that bill, we were the first state to pass it in the nation, and the governor signed it. But my senator, the guy I'm running against, voted against that common-sense legislation that is clearly within the state's authority to pass, and they should have passed it. Unfortunately, we did, but I don't know why 
Jim Woodward voted against that. And there's numerous examples like that. If you want to get a couple more details, you let me know. (laughs) No, that's great. Um, I know some of your hot topics um, because I've been following you for, well, as long as I've lived here, three years, I think. But I thought maybe all your listeners don't know if you're in there. What are you the biggest proponents for? Well, there's several, and when you're running in a Republican primary, your typical voter is going to care about guns, they're going to care about abortion, they're going to care about tax policy, and then there's a number of peripheral issues. I've had the fortune to be able to have actually 12 of my bills, I've, I've written the bills, and I've had them considered and introduced in the Idaho legislature over the last three sessions. And one of them is on abortion, so that's one of the big ones is that we actually have a bill that would properly ignore the United States Supreme Court and abolish all abortion in the state, outlaw all of it. And that's a bill that we're still waiting to get traction on. Um, some of the other bills that I've run in the legislature have to do with constitutional rights and parental rights. So one really easy example, and I thought this would be so simple to do, and it did pass the House in a couple of different years. And it was that we wanted to give parents, when they are subject to a CBS investigation, we wanted to give them the ability to be informed of what their constitutional rights are. Because some people think CBS is in this weird gray area where the Fourth Amendment no longer applies. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. So a lot of times CBS will show up at your door. They do... They get over 22,000 calls a year, and they do almost 11,000 investigations. And because they receive federal money, they ended up trying to do what they call these comprehensive safety assessments. So the most number of calls they get is about a neglect, not abuse. And what they'll do is, let's say the neglect is a minor thing. Well, they'll want to enter, and let's say it involves one child. They'll want to interview all the children in the house about every subject under the sun. That's their comprehensive safety assessment. And parents, because CBS typically shows up at their door with the police officer, the police officer is actually only there to protect the CBS social worker. He's not there to enforce any part of the Child Protective Act. But parents will be intimidated. Mm -hmm. And they almost, in fact, the Department of Health and Welfare in Idaho told me it's virtually 100% of the time, will just answer every question, let CPS in their door, et cetera. And you don't have to do that. And that's not necessarily the best thing to do in every case. And so I wanted, I wrote a bill and I wanted parents just to be given a piece of paper that told them, hey, you actually have constitutional rights that apply even when CPS shows up at your door. You don't have to answer questions. You don't have to let CPS in the house. You can hire an attorney before you answer questions. You don't have to let them do the comprehensive investigation and interview of your child. Basic rights. And it passed the house pretty overwhelmingly. And then it was killed in the Senate. So then the next year we said, okay, we're not going to have CPS hand the parents a copy of their rights, but we're just going to have CPS workers be trained in the constitutional rights as they apply to CPS investigation so that they know what the law is. And that passed in the House the next year, overwhelmingly, and then it got killed in the Senate. (laughs) And so that's just an example. I've had two bills actually pass. I had one parental rights bill passed related to, and and in fact, it passed unanimously, and it was related to when you have a brand newborn baby, the state requires certain tests be done, including a heel prick blood test, 
because they're testing for certain newborn illnesses. And if you're a home birthing family and you have your child at home, and let's say you didn't have a midwife there, which does happen, my wife and I, I have several of our children that way, then the father becomes responsible for doing that heel prick blood test within 24 hours of their baby being born. And if you don't do it, you could be prosecuted for a misdemeanor. Wow. So I wrote, we were challenging the rules a couple of years ago, and I saw that in, the, in IDAPA, the administrative rules of the Department of Health and Welfare, and behind every rule there's a statute. So I saw the statute, I rewrote it, wrote a bill that would get rid of newborn screening. Fred Wood in the House, Priscilla Ginnings ran that bill, and Fred Wood in the House, who's the chairman of Health and Welfare in the House, said, uh, he's a doctor, and he says, I'm not getting rid of newborn screening. And we basically said, oh, so you won't put parents in jail. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I'm not saying that. And so sure enough, all of the Democrats voted for our bill. All the Republicans voted for it. The governor signed it. It actually passed unanimously. But, but you can kind of tell the, the stream here is I care about constitutional rights and liberty of citizens. I want less government, not more. I don't want criminal laws that don't make any sense. Uh, we, we do want to abolish abortion. And then I another big subject I care about is gun rights. And so we have a problem up here in Sandpoint. I know I'm running long on, on all these topics. Hope you don't no. mind. No, please take your time. Yeah, it's good. Okay, so we have uh, great firearm laws in the state of Idaho. They're, they're not perfect because the Second Amendment says that your right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, which means that the Congress and they apply the 14th Amendment to apply to states as well, but even the Idaho Constitution says your right to keep and bear arms will not be abridged. Well, that what that means is there aren't supposed to be any laws that harm your right to keep and bear arms, like none. But we have a lot of them. Over the years, Congress passed a lot of laws. The state of Idaho has passed a lot of laws. So I would be for any bills, and I would write bills that basically turn that back. Well, we had a situation here in the city of Sandpoint where there's a public park owned by the city. It's used for two weeks for a music festival every year. And so I saw that the private organization that uses it for their music festival, they don't take control of the park. They just have their festival there. And they said, we're going to ban guns. So a couple of years ago, they decided to start banning firearm carry at the music festival. And Idaho once had a law related to firearms at music festivals, and the legislature... Mm struck that law out, repealed it. And so clearly it's not the intent of the legislature to ban firearms at concerts. Well, this organization decided to enforce this ban in this public city-owned park. And so a friend of mine and I went to the park and we challenged that ban in 2019 and they prevented us from entering the park. And so the, we joined with the Idaho Second Amendment Alliance and the Second Amendment Foundation and we are challenging that as a violation of the state's preemption laws, which basically say that the legislature, if there are any laws related to guns, they're only by the legislature. And no cities, counties, or any political subdivision in the state can regulate firearms at all in the state of Idaho. So, Small businesses are the lifeblood of our economy. Two in every three jobs are created by a small business. They support our local schools, charities, churches, and more. This is exactly why we love to help small businesses grow. 
Our custom-tailored solutions allow all facets of your marketing to work in a symbiotic way, helping you increase revenue from web design to social media marketing, from local search engine optimization to managing your online reviews. Our custom solutions are built for you. Visit us today at silohillweb.com. That is a, mm, an important principle. We lost at the district court because mm. of an activist judge up here, and mm. we have an appeal before the Idaho Supreme Court, which I hope we're successful. If we're not, then we'll take a bill to the legislature because it'll show that we very clearly have a problem with our preemption law, which I honestly don't think we have, but if that's the way the judges are going to interpret it, that'll be one thing we'll try to fix in the future at the legislature if we need to. Yeah, absolutely. Good job. Yeah. You know, one thing I really like about you, Scott, is you put your money where your mouth is. You know, you ran for Senate before in the past, correct? I did very briefly in 2018. Mm-hmm. What happens a lot of times is people decide I'm going to run and they've never actually gone down to the Capitol. They've never talked to their lawmakers. They've never done any of these things. I've seen where you've either flown or driven to Boise on multiple occasions advocating for these, these bills that you're running. So that's true. Um, we have to, as private citizens, obviously take ownership of our government. The Constitution says power is in the people. Well, we've got to exercise that power, and sometimes that's going to come at cost. So it it does. I mean, even to be involved in the Republican Party, I had to come down to Boise last weekend. And every all the 200 people that go to, in this case, Boise for the Republican Party meeting, are all coming at their own expense, and it costs to come 400-and-something miles from North Idaho. You've got a lot of gas money. You've got hotel money and food money, and you have to take time off of work. But we have to be willing to pay that cost in order to save our state and return it to the constitutional bounds of the American Republic that our founders designed. And if we don't do that, if we're not willing to pay the cost, then we're going to lose it. And then what happens is if we don't show up, guess who's there all the time? There's 400 registered lobbyists and 600 and something registered lobbyist corporations, and they are plying your legislature every day in the Idaho legislature, and they're getting their business done, but nobody's watching out for the people if the people aren't there to remind our legislators that we need the people's business done. And so that's something I've prioritized for several years, ever since I kind of became politically aware of how this important this is. I am loving how many candidates are speaking like you, where you are there to serve the people again, where our legislators have forgotten that they've been serving themselves and they've been serving lobbyists and Nayaki and others and people are over it and they're done with that. And there's, I think there's going to be a real red wave this year because uh, we have to take back our government where it's, it's gone like a train wreck out of control. Yeah, Absolutely. Scott, there's a lot of concern for people dealing with forced vaccination. Now, I don't think it's going to be an outright thing where they say, line up, get your COVID shot or else, you know, you're going to jail or anything like that. But, you know, we're seeing that there's a lot of discrimination within the workplace, you know, people losing their jobs, different things like that. Um, What is what's kind of your hope or what do you want to do to tackle that issue? So I've seen a lot of the bills that have been presented, especially in the Idaho House. The Senate, of course, completely failed in November to protect Idahoans whatsoever. And that was at the time that Joe Biden wants to pass a multitude of mandates, obviously one related through OSHA to 
employers with more than 100 employees, which the Supreme Court just said isn't constitutional in their opinion. And then you've got the CMS mandate through Medicaid and Medicare services. So they want to enforce that upon the hospitals and medical facilities that receive Medicaid. And the Supreme Court said that one is okay. So you've got a lot of people. But even besides that, I honestly thought that Joe Biden's approach really was the bully pulpit. If employers are sitting on the fence between whether they're going to make mandates as a condition of employment, I think Biden pushed them off the fence back in September when he announced that that was the direction he was headed. And so that's the power of the presidential bully pulpit, getting fence sitters off the fence. But the people who pay the price for that are Idaho employees and people who work for these businesses that are asked to do something that's unconscionable in some cases to their consciences. And my opinion, I've seen a number of bills, and one, for example, is fairly simple. It's kind of like the vaccine bill for schools. You know, we have this requirement in Idaho code that says if you're going to attend the school, public or private, you're supposed to be vaccinated. But then it allows you to have an exemption for any reason, and you don't need to turn in a form related to that. So in essence, you don't really have a vaccine requirement. I saw a bill like that, but I honestly think we need to be a lot more aggressive than just that. I think we actually need to make it a criminal act to make as a condition of employment the taking of a particular drug. And by doing that, you are empowering. So if there's a criminal penalty, you're empowering local prosecutors and sheriffs to bring pressure against these corporations and businesses who would otherwise do that? Because I think it's a constitutional right or a God, at least a God-given right that you do not have as an employer the right to coerce people as a condition of employment, especially since the contract already existed. These are existing employees. And there's risk with these medications. And you can't coerce some person to take a risk that could harm them as a condition of their employment. I think that should be a criminal act. Well, that would send a pretty strong shot to the federal government related to their mandates. And it would actually take people who Biden was able to knock off the fence and have them hop back up on the fence and jump back over to the right side. And so I think we need to be aggressive in these fights. It used to be that I would only pick fights with the really big things. I used to think, okay, you can't murder children in the womb and you know, guns are a pretty big deal. And now it's come to the point where you almost have to fight every single topic and you have to do it aggressively because we need to reassert the state authority, the state's authority on any of these subjects, but also the right of the people on any of these subjects. And we need to do it aggressively because the other side over time has been so successful in eroding what the constitutional republic is supposed to be about. We know no longer... The state, for example, the legislature doesn't even know what its power is. It doesn't know that it can say no to the federal government. The governor doesn't know he can say no to the federal government. Certainly the attorney general hasn't told them that. Mm -hmm. And when the federal government is hunting on our land, which they've been doing for decades and even more than 100 years, usurping authority that belongs to the state and to the people, well, it's up to us to enforce that boundary. But in order to enforce the boundary, people have to know there is a boundary and that we have the authority to enforce it. And so we've got to get aggressive because that's how we're going to teach people that there is a boundary. Idaho has the right to keep the government off their, out of their territory and out of their business, their constitutionally authorized business.
And so that's how I would handle the vaccine mandate at this point. Clearly, the federal government felt comfortable in, you know, going ahead and proposing these mandates, and we need to make them feel uncomfortable. We need to make them think that if they try to enforce such a mandate in the state, that someone's going to get arrested and thrown in the local jail, because that will act as a deterrent to bad behavior by the federal government and any, and any employer that wants to enforce a, an immoral mandate. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's funny when I look at your platform, Scott, I got to tell you what it all looks like it boils down to is, is state sovereignty and, and the state making the decision. It seems like on almost everything, it seems like you're always going back consistently to saying the powers within the state. This is where we push back. This is where our authority is. Speaking of. Correct. Yeah. Speaking of lands, you know, we have, of course, a lot of people moving to Idaho. We have, you know, a lot of people who are feeling the impact of growth. And then, of course, you know, you're talking North Idaho, I believe. You guys have a, a rather large area of federal land up there. Is that correct? We do. What's, and I guess it's kind of a, <laughs> I brought up two different subjects, but, you know, they do tend to go hand in hand. What is what is your plan or your hope as far as, you know, managing that growth while also having that limitation because the federal government does have a bunch of the land held hostage? Well, sure. When you talk, and there are a lot of people up here who are very sensitive, whether you call it federal land or federally owned land versus federally occupied land or federally managed land. Mm -hmm. And I do prefer the term federally managed. It's being claimed by the feds right now. It's being managed by the feds right now. And there are a whole lot of negative consequences to Idaho for that being the case. Right now, 63% of Idaho is claimed by the federal government. A clear reading of the United States Constitution would suggest that there's no way that they ought to occupy 63% of Idaho. There's no way you can interpret the Constitution. Okay? Yeah. Back in the 70s, there was an effort among the states to push back against that and basically come up with a plan of the western states, because that's where the problem is, to take those lands back into ownership of the state and of the people in the state. And the reason it's such a critical issue is because when you talk about growth, and we're getting a ton of political refugees moving into my district, Bonner and Boundary County, and the prices here are sky high, and prices in a capitalistic economy are very simple. It's a balance of supply and demand. So we have a much higher demand than we've historically had, and we have a constraint on supply. Boundary County is particularly bad. It's a higher percentage than the state average that's claimed by the federal government. So it can't be developed. You can't build houses on it. Newcomers can't develop farms on it. They can't develop homesteads on it. And so you're stuck in this very narrow band of available land in this district up here. And that's artificially raising the price of land and houses, but also local government, you're not going to be able to fund the services of local government from these lands. They get what's called, so the county, for example, gets what's, what is called PILT, which is payment in lieu of taxes. So you've got all this land claimed by the federal government, so hundreds or thousands of acres in this county and the county would otherwise, that would be a tax base for property tax, which is another issue. We can talk about property taxes separately, but as it is, that is how we're paying for county services. And they can't tax that land, so they get this payment 
in lieu of taxes from the federal government that is far less than what they would get from that land. So now you're having to pay for county services to provide services throughout the entire territory of District 1, but your tax base is only 35 to 40% of the land available in District 1. So now the burden falls heavier on the remaining landowners. So there's all kinds of problems that are created besides the very basic thing that you're ignoring the United States Constitution and no one's really actively pushing back on it. So I think we need to go back to this plan possibly from the western states from the 1970s and we need to actually get the states like Nevada, like Utah, like Idaho, Montana to basically develop a comprehensive plan to get the federal government out of their states and out of the management of these lands and turn them back over to the control of Idaho and the citizens of Idaho. Mm -hmm. I would say one thing that's always said when you bring up, because you're absolutely right, it's federally managed lands, right? And they say that because they know that they can't own that land. I mean, my goodness, and the Constitution says that they can own 10 square miles, and that's Washington, D.C., so in order to access that, they say, well, we're just managing it for you. You own it, but you know, we're going to put all the restrictions on it we want. You know, I talked to a friend who does logging and he's like, well, I can log these down trees in this area. I mean, it's not in North Idaho, but it is here in Idaho. He's like, I can down log these down trees as long as they're within five feet of this road, but they have to be down <laughs> and they have to be right here. I'm not allowed to go up there 10 feet, you know, so there's all these crazy restrictions. But, you know, when it comes to it, you know, the biggest thing you'll hear from lawmakers is, is, oh, we'd love to get this land back, but, you know, we can't afford to manage it. What would be your pushback with that? Mm. Well, the people who would, basically, there's two, two thoughts I have related to this land that we're talking about. Because some people will freak out, even in my district, you know, conservatives will say, well, we don't want to turn all that land over to private landowners because then we lose access to it, which is interesting. But there is a solution to that, too, that's still more satisfactory than the the feds managing that land, and that is that some of that land could be held in the public trust by the state of Idaho. So you could still manage it as public land, but at least it's controlled at the state level, which is a much more manageable organization than at the federal level, which, in my opinion, is completely unmanageable. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, going... You'll, you may have to reiterate the question a little bit, but yeah, how do you effectively uh, do it? You want to restate the question a bit? Yeah, I guess I was a little broad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess my question would be is a lot of lawmakers, if you say, hey, we should take back control of this federally managed land, I think as Idahoans, we're closest to it. We understand what needs to be done. Bureaucrats in D.C. don't necessarily know what's going to prevent fires, do all these things. Lawmakers will say, well, you know, and they'll put their arm on your shoulder and they'll say, well, you know, Josh, we'd love to do it, but we can't afford to manage that land. We need the federal government and their dollars so that we can fight, you know, (laughs) fight these fires and all this stuff. So I guess my question to you, if if I had to just strip it down, would be, can Idaho afford to manage those lands while keeping, you know, it public and available and get those tax dollars. Can we afford to do it? Yeah, well, that's number one is just by selling some of it privately, you create tax dollars locally and at the state level because there's tremendous resources on that land like timber and mineral assets. And so you're going to, and of course that land can be used to produce agriculture and a whole bunch of other things that are going to increase the GDP of the state economy. 
So it's going to pour money into state coffers to manage it. I mean, that's how we produce wealth, right? We start with raw material, and that's how human beings produce wealth. And so mm-hmm. the more raw material you have access to, and the more human ingenuity you allow to be applied to those resources, you create the wealth that then pays to manage the land. Um, for the land that you keep in the public trust, which we already have, like in the endowment lands, are used to harvest timber in order to fund the schools. Mm-hmm. And you basically practice the same thing. You practice smart forestry or mineral resource management. There's some tremendously, we're called the gem state for a reason, there's tremendously valuable minerals on these lands that could be harvested, mined, and that produces wealth. And then you can, so you can take a portion of a public land or portions of it and either log it or manage it for mineral resources. And even from the revenues from that public land, you may be able to have enough to manage the actual public land without even taking from all the land that you turned over to the private landowners. So I think there's just a tremendous opportunity that goes with any land ownership and any resource ownership that you're going to be able to produce prosperity and wealth from it. And then, of course, you can use that. And with our, our the way we design the system, if we're going to provide services, then we just tax in some form or another. And that's how you provide the revenue stream if the government's going to have a hand in managing any public land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every Idahoan should be like, yeehaw, we struck gold when we hear Scott Herndon talk about, we do have these natural resources. And I think what's happened is we've gone status quo. And so we, we're not paying attention to all of those resources. And it's it seemed impossible. But for some reason, a lot of candidates are talking about this now. And I think we are feeling empowered as Idahoans to take back Idaho. And so I'm hoping that conservatives will hear that you are, you're well-rounded, you're educated in this, you know, around the laws, and that you are also, you know, you're optimistic in what we could do um, with our Idaho land. It's exciting, I think. Yeah. Well, to play the devil's advocate here, right? The other concern, because yes, we want that land back at the same time, you know, I hunt, right? So I do enjoy having that access to land. I think people do get concerned that, you know, greedy politicians here locally may start selling it off with an acquisition of that land back, right? From being managed federally, would your envisionment have something that, that puts restraints on that so that we don't become like Texas where everything is privately owned? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question because this is where you you have the purest when it comes to private land ownership, right? Everything ought to be owned privately. And then if you go to the real purists, they don't even believe in planning and zoning. They think everybody, a true private property right includes the ability to use your land for whatever you want. And of course, when lands in private landowners' hands, they get to dictate the boundaries of it and who can use it and who can't. So they're going to, of course, typically exclude the public from any of that. I have, we're right in the middle of this in Bonner County right now because it seems like our commissioners are fairly aggressive and they're in letting certain developers kind of violate the comprehensive plan, it seems, and violate the zoning ordinances and go ahead and allow changes to those on a case-by-case basis, usually in the favor of developers and not in the favor of private citizens. It, there was one victory of private citizens here recently at the Idaho Supreme Court related to a big landowner that I buy rock from, and they have a quarry, and they developed the quarry far beyond the scope, 
was really intruding upon the quality of life of those that surrounded them. And so the citizens in that area filed a lawsuit and prevailed at the Idaho Supreme Court in that case. Um, but that brought up that particular situation, which you're classic example of. So in my mind, you've got the private property landowner and his rights, but you also have the community responsibility. So I think there is a balance between private property land rights and community responsibilities. Because I have a right as a private property owner and I want to develop my land and, and prosper from it. But also if I were to do things on this land, they would actually do the opposite for my neighbors. So if I decided to, at the particular location I'm at, just go ahead and do a big old junkyard, let's say, Mm -hmm. that would harm my neighbor's prosperity. So I think that's where we have a community responsibility, and I think that's why government, the state legislature, has authorized in Idaho Code the development of comprehensive plans by county. And then that's why our counties have implemented usually land use regulations. And uh, going back to the original question of, you know, do we want to put it all in private landowners' hands and recognize a pure private property ownership over everything? Or do we like the idea of having some public land to share? Well, I think that's a decision we get to make as Idahoans. I like the idea of having, I live backed up to thousands of privately owned timber acres and it's literally right out my back door and I actually have an easement so I always have access to that but I understand most people don't and so where do they go hunt and if you have a patchwork of private land there may not be a whole lot of opportunity for you for recreation for hunting and snowmobiling and other things and so I think there is a public interest in having publicly managed land but I want those decisions to be made at the state level not at the federal level Absolutely, and I think that I think we can balance the whole going way back to the original part of our conversation about supply and demand and land to develop. I think we can balance with the population of Idaho having public lands, but also having enough of a resource base to fit the whole capitalistic system of supply and demand without you know having too little supply. And I think we can balance all that, and that's. That is a, it is a lofty goal. It's a, it's a difficult goal because you have a lot of people and a lot of competing interests. But I think that's actually one of the purposes of government. And the more local we keep those decisions, I think the more successful government can accomplish meeting everybody's demands of it. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Scott, you're talking about running for Senate, right? That's what you're running for. Our Senate isn't exactly known for being a beacon of conservative ideology. <laughs> what, I, I guess, are you, is there any concern or, or what are you expecting, you know, with, with a lot of the pushback you may get for these bills that you want to introduce? Is there a plan? Because you know a lot of them, they're going to try and put in a drawer and make disappear and not see the light of day. Do you have a plan to push back against that? I do. I think that goes to what I call one of the systemic problems of our government, of our state government. So there's all kinds of problems in government. There's the federal state balance balance of power. But then there's within the state and within one branch of government, the legislature, there is a systemic problem. There's a broken system. And that system is that a committee chairman, I've had my bills held in the drawer. So remember, I've written 12 bills and that one about abortion in particular. 
three years in a row and probably this year as well, it'll be just held in a drawer. And some of those bills I've had passed the House, they didn't never got a hearing in the Senate. The Senate committee chair decided to just hold those bills in a drawer. So I think there needs to be a systemic change made in the legislature. It's not just, in other words, the system needs to be changed. Well, the people have power over that system. There's actually two ways you could change that. The people who have power over the system are the legislators themselves. Mm-hmm. That can be changed either in their Senate or House rules or their joint rules as to how they conduct business. So the situation right now is a chairman has more power than the governor. The governor could veto a bill he doesn't like. But then the legislature, as a check and a balance, has the opportunity to override his veto. A chairman of a committee can veto a bill he doesn't like by not granting a hearing, which is what Fred Wood did in November. There were nine bills assigned to his committee, and not only did he not grant it a hearing, he didn't even convene the committee to hear them. Mm-hmm. So he effectively was the totalitarian authority over nine bills. So all these legislators that brought these bills and they were representing 53,000 Idahoans apiece or 47,000 before districting. They, all of their people are disenfranchised. They're disenfranchised. All of the Idaho citizens are disenfranchised by one guy. That's got to change. But unfortunately, to change that at the legislative level, we're going to need to get enough people elected who think that's a bad idea that committee chairman have that much power. Now think about it. Let's say they don't like my abortion is murder bill. Have a hearing and quickly dispose of it after a short debate. It's not that difficult. I don't know what they're afraid of. They don't want their system exposed, which, by the way, is part of the problem, that the lobbyists basically control the agenda, and the pro-life lobbyists don't want this bill heard, they don't want that bill heard, so they conspire with the chairman kill this bill and allow this one to go forward. That's the way the system currently works. Mm-hmm. So we got to get enough people there who can identify the problem, articulate the problem, and change people's minds about the problem. Change legislators' minds. Or, worst case scenario, we still have the power of the ballot initiative in Idaho. And we could actually run a ballot initiative, and we the people could pass legislation to change that. We could actually write into Idaho code that we can't have totalitarian dictators heading up these committees, that they don't have that much power. We could actually do that. It's not easy. Yeah. I don't know which one's easier. Is it easier to get decent people elected who understand that problem, can articulate it, and lead people to a solution, or is it easier to get a ballot initiative done? I'm willing to try the legislative process first. I'm willing to be the senator that shows up there and begins to articulate proper Republican government and then convinces his colleagues to go in the right direction and fix that systemic problem. And that there's no harm by hearing even the Democrats' bills. There's no harm. If we think they're a bad idea, we'll just vote no on them, that sort of thing. I think that's the open governmental process that the people deserve and expect. Yeah. And that's the way I would try to head the ship of state as a senator and my own little place in the state at that point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, it's a, uh, it's funny. We talk about, um, doing that and they almost act like, Oh, that's impossible. There's too many bills. Yada, yada. I'll tell you what North Dakota does it. They listen to every bill and they vote on it in committee. Mm-hmm. So I'm not afraid of any bill introduced by anybody. I'd love to have them heard because a lot of times the people who are disenfranchised 
It's not those people who are represented by Ayaki. This episode is brought to you by Spire Visuals. Spire Visuals is Idaho's premier video production company that puts an emphasis on social media marketing. Whether you're looking to run an ad for your company to attract new employees or new clients, or if you're looking to create a video to tell people who you are and why you're running for office, Spire Visuals is your number one stop. Look, Let me tell you some facts about running social media ads with a video. By 2022, online videos will make up more than 82% of all consumer internet traffic, 15 times higher than it was in 2017. Viewers retain 95% of a message when they watch it in video, compared to only 10% when reading in text. 78% of people watch online videos every week, with 55% of viewers watching videos every day. 85% of consumers want to see more video content from brands. Look, folks, the data is there and it is pointing to a need and a desire from consumers for video production in your brand. So don't hesitate today. Reach out to Josh at Spire Visuals. His email is josh at spirevisuals.com. Their website is spirevisuals.com and his phone number is 208-994-2063. Again, 208-994-2063. They're getting their bills heard. It's Idaho citizens. As as you've shown, you have bills that have been stuck in drawers and and it's just unfortunate that those are the people who are being disenfranchised is Idahoans. Yeah, it's very frustrating. Is this, if we have a representative republic, which is what we have, then how do you have representation if your ideas cannot even get a minute of a hearing? That's not representation. Mm-hmm. And your representative is being denied the ability to represent their constituents. Your senator is being denied that ability. They're, the majority of the constituents may want this policy considered and debated, and your representative or senator goes and presents that policy change in the form of a bill, and your those people, which in, again in the new districts is 53,000 people, get no representation if the committee chair says no. I just think if we're going to love America, then we have to respect that in our representative republic, when those representatives work diligently to represent their constituents, we at least have to hear their idea, and we at least have to dispose of it publicly and not privately. That just seems like the way the republic was designed, and that if you love America, you have to support that idea. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any question that you're going to be an awesome voice for the people of Idaho, all of us. And But I do, I want to ask a few things because we haven't touched on who are you as just a family guy? I know on Facebook, I see you and your lovely wife and your children. And just tell us about Scott. Yeah, so Scott got born again when I was in in the 90s when I was living in San Francisco, California, of all places. So I became a believer in Jesus Christ. And fortunately, at that very time, I also met my wife, Arlene. And Arlene had grown up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was born in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And her dad was an Oakland, California police officer who was killed in the line of duty in mm-hmm. 19th. His name was Michael Faulkner. Wow. Uh, she under she was raised in a family that understood service, and I was raised in a family. I went to military school in Missouri, so I loved and respected the United States military. And so we just had, a, I think, a love for our country. And then we moved to, but we had first a love for Jesus Christ. And so then. We started having children in the Bay Area and in Los Angeles and then in Kansas City where we moved briefly because I was working as a computer programmer. And we wanted space for our children. And we wanted to, I remember my wife said as we started having children, let's homeschool them. I'm like, "Uh, what's that? Like, I didn't know anything. (laughs) I was 
parenting. So we chose the path of homeschooling. My wife stayed home, raised our children, and we moved to Idaho in 2004 because there was affordable land. And she always said she wanted to have milk cows, so we have milk cows now. And so we have a, a little piece of 15 acres just south of Sandpoint. We have some cows and chickens, and we raise pigs, and we butcher our own meat, and we hunt. And when we moved here, we only had four children, and then we've had four more since we lived, moved here. So we had a total of eight children. Our oldest is 25. Our youngest has Down syndrome, and he's eight. So that means he has third 21st chromosome, and he is such a blessing to our family. And uh, so we just love having our family and living on, on our own little private piece of Idaho. And then I think I told you earlier, I was a jail chaplain for five years. So I ministered the gospel at the local Bonner County Jail from 2008 to 2013. And I was, uh, remember when, back when I was in California, I was a computer programmer. I used to do PeopleSoft financial systems, huge 50 to $100 million software systems for major corporations like Charles Schwab. Toyota Motor Sales. I even worked at UC Berkeley. My wife graduated from UC Berkeley. I worked there as a, implementing one of these systems. And then uh, when I moved to Idaho, I built my own house. And one of the reasons I moved to Idaho was to have a change of career because I have three boys and I wanted them to be able to work with me. Mm-hmm. So they worked in my business. So what I did was I built my house, learned how to build houses, and now I run a business called Scott Herndon Homes. And we usually build usually one very large custom home for a client every year. I have uh, three other people that work for me. We use subcontractors. We do almost everything ourselves. And we're building a beautiful home right now, right on Lake Pondre, looking across southeast, about 30 miles of Lake Pondre. And I really enjoy it. And uh, being in the Senate is going to totally interrupt all of that. <laughs> it's going to be terrible. Uh-huh. I have to drive 400 miles down to Boise and figure out how to make it work or fly, you know, three months a year, but it's that important. It's that important, I figured out, that if we don't step up and assume our duty, then the wrong people are stepping up and doing it, and they're heading our state in the wrong direction. So I'm willing to make what I actually consider to be a tremendous sacrifice to represent District 1 in the Constitution. And so I'm going to disrupt all this really perfect Idaho lifestyle that I have right now running my own business and raising my own family. They all, all seven of my children still live here at the house with me. And uh, my wife is a great and wonderful woman. And we go to Candlelight Church in Coeur d'Alene with Pastor Paul Van Noy. So that's sort of a picture. My identical twin brother lives a mile down the road. I have an identical twin, and he runs Bonner County's last dairy. And he sells raw organic milk at most of the local grocery stores. Mm, that's great. Cream. Love that. And so, so we have a, a deep investment in our community, and uh, we really enjoy our lifestyle in North Idaho. Yeah, you've got a beautiful family, Scott. I got to tell you, out of all the candidates' pictures, and this is an, not a knock against anybody, but out of all their pictures on their websites, mm-hmm. yours is my absolute favorite. It's a beautiful picture for our listeners. It's a beautiful picture of you, your wife, your kids, and you're all walking and you've got American flags and Idaho flags. And it's just, it's a great picture. I got to say, I also love seeing the videos that your wife and you post of 
your girls playing the violin. They do a beautiful job. It's always, it's always really cool. You know, look, I don't homeschool. Kirsten does. Mm -hmm. And there's so many benefits to homeschooling and you can see it. So it's really cool for someone who isn't homeschooling to see all these opportunities because a lot of times people who don't homeschool, they think there's limitations, right? We think, oh, well, there's so many limitations for these kids. And then when you see the things that people are participating in and doing, you're like, wow, my kid's missing out. So seeing how good and how talented your children are, and then like hearing Kirsten say, yeah, I've taught my kids how to butcher <laughs> animals. We do all these different things. Mm-hmm. It's like, my goodness, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this year, my kids are, um, they're, I have left them before and said, hey, we got to go over here and the pigs need to be killed. Will you guys take care of it? And they will do everything. They actually know exactly what to do to process a pig and get it put in the freezer. But yeah, you mentioned the girls. So I have five girls and they, my wife always played, she was trained by her dad. Remember he was the Oakland police officer and he was a trumpet player and he would get up at 4 a.m. and practice the trumpet and get her up to practice classical piano. And so she always had this skill and my brother played saxophone and clarinet, but I've never developed a musical skill. And I always wondered, how are we going to inject like musical skill into the family? Mm-hmm. Well, I had no idea. It completely just took off on its own. The girls, so they have their own YouTube channel now. I think they even have a Facebook page. It's called the Herndon Girls. And they just did a video recently that they put together. They orchestrated and choreographed it. It's called Orange Blossom Special. And they had developed that talent entirely on their own. They're, oh, wow. Because they're all kind of competitive with each other, the 10-year-old is right there in the mix with the 20-year-old, all playing the violin, but they also play the mandolin, and they play the drums, and I think one or two, the flute, and a couple of other instruments. And they've all developed that just in the last three years. It's amazing how much you can accomplish in so little time if you're just kind of given the right tools a love for learning, and then free reign to go after it. And that's what my all my children have demonstrated in numerous skill sets over the years. If you just give them uh, a love for learning early, and then you give them the tools they need, they'll, they'll take it way past what you could ever think that you could accomplish with them. Yeah, that's true. Free-range free kids is what I call mine. They, <laughs> it's fun. It. Yep. Well, that's neat. It sounds like a special group. I'm going to go listen. Yeah, they're really talented, like you said. And that's that's actually really shocking and amazing. You know what shocks me about that? You said that they're all self-taught, but they all play together in sync beautifully. Mm-hmm. So sisters, it, yeah. Man. I just, I'll be honest, Scott. I just assume your wife taught them <laughs> how to play because they do a phenomenal job. But yeah, she, what she does is she basically gives goes back to just gives them the tools, kind of like gives them a direction. Hey, here's some ideas. But honestly, I, me and my wife, we would have probably set a goal that was 10% of what they're able, what they're able to do. In other words, the kids will always go way past. My boy, Benjamin was a really good carver and he carved back in his early teenage years. And it's just because we gave him the tools Mm -hmm. to carve and he took it and he completely ran with it. So that's neat. That's what you do. And then they become masters at these things. And you never knew there could be so much talent in this person that's your own child. Yeah. 
yeah, I buy a lot of those things like the woodworking kits and here you go. And then it sits there and I'm like, is somebody going to use it? But you have eight children. So eventually somebody says, oh my goodness, look, a woodworking kit. <laughs> exactly. That's great. Yeah. The whole time you're talking about all these, you know, great things, you know, dealing with homeschooling, Kirsten's over here smiling, nodding like, yep. Yeah. Yep. Jackson's teaching himself piano. He sits there with his uh, sister's Mac book and open and he's just teaching him himself piano children with the time to do it and that you know love of learning still there uh, ignited it's it's a good thing yeah, yeah it's really good well scott you have an absolute beautiful family i'm so excited that you're running for senate i gotta tell you you have my full support the podcast i think we can agree kirsten oh, right yeah we endorse you. We mm-hmm. would love to see you representing Idahoans because at the end of the day, yes, you will be representing District 1, but we're all going to benefit from it. So, Absolutely. Scott, where can people find more information about you and also donate to your campaign? Yeah, I like that you mentioned that we're all going to benefit from it. When you talk about the Idaho Senate, Josh, you're basically talking about two reliable votes at the moment. Mm-hmm. and some very questionable votes otherwise, and no really good articulate leadership coming consistently out of that body. And so the Senate, we will all benefit from every good senator that we can place in that body. And because of that, I have been very successful getting people pretty energized about my campaign. So we've actually had almost 200 donors, which I really appreciate. But to take out an incumbent, I take this race very seriously. And so we've raised actually about $57,000. Wow. That's amazing. Um, But but we are, and we are ahead of the incumbent in cash right now. Wow. But I want to make sure we stay there because we're going to be able to pound him. And I mean it because his record is that bad that we have to be able to make sure Democrats are going to be voting in our election Mm -hmm. in the May primary, the May Republican primaries. All the Democrats up here know that they've got to keep this guy in office. And so right away, I know that 25 percent of the people up here are going to be voting against me. So we've got to raise the money. And so the easy way to do that is HerndonForIdaho.com. And that's H-E-R-N-D-O-N-F-O-R-Idaho.com. And I've got a really easy donate link there. And I would greatly appreciate that if people are able to help our campaign. We have a great strategic plan. I have some consultants that I hired who are very competitive. A good friend of mine helps Priscilla Giddings in her campaign right now. And he's also consulting with my campaign. And so we're expecting to be very competitive. And I I see it as my job to make sure my campaign has the resources to get the message to the voters and turn out the vote on May 17th and make sure that we finally win this District 1 seat for a conservative, which hasn't been done in 26 years. And you mentioned that we have two good representatives. Heather Scott's one of them. I mean, this is a conservative district. We're able to place conservatives in these bodies. If we want a conservative win, this is the district to do it in. Mm -hmm. So it's a good place to invest in my campaign to get a true conservative in the Idaho Senate. And it will make a difference. Every person we place there is going to help change Idaho for the better and preserve liberty and increase liberty because we've seen a lot of infringements on that over the last couple of years, especially during COVID. Mm -hmm. You're working with Zach? With who? Uh, Zach. 
Lattenschlager? Zach, yeah. Do you know Zach? I know Zach, yeah. I, I also work on Priscilla's <laughs> campaign. Zach is phenomenal. He, I'm, yeah, he's I'm, a good friend. He goes way back because he's an abortion abolitionist. Mm-hmm. He knows friends out of Texas and all over the country. And I think I became aware of him years ago. So I know I've consulted with him on guns and, some, uh, and abortion and other issues probably more than a few years ago. Mm-hmm. It was the first time he and I probably connected. Yeah. Zach is phenomenal. We're going to have to have him on this campaign. He is... I, I got to tell you, that is being a good steward of your money, hiring Zach. He will save you money in the long run. He is a, I would, I would dare say a political genius. So I'm really happy to hear you're working with him. I am going yeah, to I'm be. working with him and then another group called McShane and Zach knows them well too. And the key is, is if we're going to invest in this campaign, you know, just like running your business, you have to be wise and you have to. You know, you have to raise the money. You have to get on the ground and knock on doors, which we're going to be starting in a couple of weeks. And then when you spend the money, you got to be spending it on things that are effective. Mm-hmm. So that's why I've involved McShane and Zach, because we want to make sure that when we spend the money, I look at it as I'm entrusted with this money by all of these people in Idaho that are donating. And we need to make sure that I'm a good steward of their money to actually help win the seed and do things that are going to help get that job done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm excited to hear that. I'm making a $100 donation to your campaign. I would challenge our listeners to make that as well. If you can't afford to do a hundred bucks or you know what, do a thousand. If you can do it, be better than me <laughs> as far as you know, using your money. But look, if you can't afford to do that, but you still want to help Scott, because again, it is so important for us Idahoans. And even if you're listening outside of the state of Idaho, we actually have some listeners that are outside of our state, but they're very close. Mm-hmm. So if you want to see us because again we are Rocky Mountain Heights 2.0. This is their next stop. This is where they're putting their money. Donate to candidates like Scott Herndon. Uh, if you can't do a hundred dollars, do twenty dollars and twenty two cents, and let us know. Amen. We're going to do a, sh- a big shout out for everybody who's donated to the campaigns that we've endorsed here at What's Happening Idaho. Well, I appreciate your donation, Josh. I and and even calling, uh, seeing if people can you know donate a thousand. I've been so blessed. I've had 23 people donate $1,000 so far to my campaign. Wow. But, but last Saturday, we were in Caldwell, down in your area, and we had a little fundraising dinner that some friends of mine put on for me. And we raised, mostly just from small donations, almost $5,000 last Saturday That's night. great. That's good. So I wanted awesome. to go to that. People are, are willing. People are willing now. They mm. realize they've got to have an investment. By the way, when I say I've raised money, I'm putting my money into, I've put $12,500 of that total in because I want to be more invested than anybody else Yeah. and make sure that I'm leading by example. Absolutely. That's great. Well, uh, you will have my donation here within the next couple of days, certainly before this airs. This is going to air Monday morning at yep. 7 a.m. And I'll donate to you. Yep. And I am sorry I missed your dinner last weekend. I, I wanted know. to go, but yeah. I, I had already planned on that governor's ball. And so <laughs> girl, girls take a lot of time to get ready. You can't be six to eight in Caldwell and then get to the governor's ball. by. I, you know what? I had actually yeah. planned on going to that. <laughs> yeah, I had planned on going to it, but Kirsten looked at me and and we talked and I said, I've got to sleep. I, I just go all the time <laughs> and I've got to take a break. I got to sleep. So yep. yeah, I, I just needed to rest. So, but I will absolutely support your campaign. Again, any of our listeners who are, let us know that you've donated to Scott Herndon. We're going to do something special where we shout everybody out. So again, thank you, Scott, for joining us. Yeah, it's been thanks, an absolute Scott. pleasure. And, and I'm glad that we're getting, you know, your message out and helping you extend your reach here with what's happening in Idaho. 
I appreciate both you and Kirsten, and I pray for much success for the podcast. That's exactly what I thought we needed in the state. So thanks for doing it, both of you. It's all good. (laughs) Thanks, Scott. All right, Scott. Thank you so much. Again, people, make sure you donate to Scott Hernan. Let us know. We're going to do something big for you guys. So everybody take care. (laughs) 